and welcome to the FreightVine podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist here at Chainalytics, and today I'm joined by Dr. Alex Scott. Alex is an Assistant Professor of Supply Chain Management at Michigan State University. His research focuses on supply chain policy, transportation safety, and transportation market dynamics. Prior to joining academia, Alex spent a decade in the industry. Alex is one of those rare academics who actually has one foot in the practitioner world and the other in the research world. Now, I asked Alex today to join me to talk about one of his current papers entitled, Did the Electronic Logging Device Mandate Reduce Accidents? This is a paper that he wrote with Dr. Andrew Balthrop of University of Arkansas and Dr. Jason Miller of Michigan State. Following my conversation with Alex, I'll be joined by Dr. Enam Ayub to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Alex, welcome to the Freight Vine. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, before we get to discussing your recent paper on ELDs, let's talk about how you got from working at J.B. Hunt to becoming an assistant professor at Michigan State. Yeah, so it's been a, a long, kind of strange and, and great road. So I, uh, I took a supply chain management course at Georgia Tech while I was getting a master's degree, and I fell in love with the field. And from there, I took a, a great job at J.B. Hunt, working for some very good people. Um, some people you're probably familiar with, Gary Wicker and Eric Irvin at J.B. Hunt, who were great bosses. And so I, uh, while there, I really fell in love with the uh, the trucking industry because there's so many interesting problems. It seems like it's straightforward on the surface, but uh, when you really dig into the details, there's so many interesting problems in trucking, things like load selection and pricing problems and container repositioning, some of the things I got to work on. But I'm I'm surprised, though. Because Georgia Tech, they do a lot of great supply chain stuff, but they're not as strong in trucking, to be honest. They haven't done as much. What attracted you to trucking as opposed to, say, going into network design or joining CAPS or one of those companies? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, studied operations research, which was in the industrial engineering group. And uh, and J.B. Hunt has a pretty sizable uh they call it the management science group there, at least they used to call it the management science group, where we would basically apply, uh, you know, engineering techniques to their business problem. So it was just a great opportunity. And uh, yes, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, so, and so after J.B. Hunt, I, uh, I worked at a warehousing company called Kenko Logistics, who does primarily uh, outsourced warehousing. And there I got introduced to network design because we would design customers' networks for them as a, as a service, basically. And I just found that fascinating because then you're getting to the real strategic design decisions of what a supply chain looks like. And so that, that's where I kind of ended my industry side of my career. But you decided to go back to get your PhD at age 30, 31? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I was 32. Uh, so it was a big wow. step, a uh, huge risk, uh, a big pay cut, probably even a bigger pay cut uh, to go back and get your PhD. But I just, I really liked doing research. I'd been somewhat familiar with doing research. And I, so I really enjoyed it. Kind of the, the thought of discovering something new that we might not know and doing it in a, a rigorous way always really appealed to me. And I also enjoyed teaching a lot too, which is a big part of the job. And so I uh, I chose to go to academia, which is Probably the road less traveled, but I uh, have enjoyed the ride. So which attracted you really for the PhD? Because having done this, the same thing, I think I was 32 or 33 when I came back. Actually, I was 31. And so everyone thought I was crazy in my family. (laughs) But was it that you wanted to teach based on what you saw at Georgia Tech and Purdue? Or is it that you wanted to do more research? Which one pulled you the most? Yeah, I would say it was both. I would say research was the thing that pulled me even more. And if you're going to work at a big research institution like you do or I do, you know, research is really what drives things. And so I really enjoyed the idea of doing research. So it's funny. So now you're doing the academic side, but you went back to trucking. 
you know, so you ignored all that network design stuff where the hard math is. And so you're back to truckload trucking. Why'd you focus on that? Yeah. Uh, so a few reasons. One, it's a it's a pretty complex setting. It's deceptively complex, and I know it really well. And so it helped me to understand the ins and outs. And uh, I've always enjoyed working with data. And um, you know, the truck industry has a ton of data from a variety of aspects. The most recent stuff I've been looking at is uh, regulatory data. But I, I knew the industry, and I liked the potential topics. And actually, uh, and this is absolutely true, I came across a couple papers by you uh, during my PhD when I was looking at topics and things to study. And I really enjoyed those papers. And I also thought there were things that could be expounded upon. So uh, so you have a great paper in, uh, in production operations management that I read. And you mentioned something like you, know, you have these procurement auctions, but 20% of the time, the load offers are rejected. And I, I, I knew that very deeply at J.B. Hunt because I worked on those kind of models, right? And so I, uh, I, I thought that would be a great topic to kind of extend what we know in that space. Yeah. So you must be the person that read that paper. Yeah, that's right. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the guy. <laughs> You're the one guy. No, it's interesting because, you know, this is why I kind of came roundabout as well to it and discovered transportation and became amazed why more people weren't studying it because it does seem really simple. But once you explain the complexities of the contracts that they're not really binding to people, especially people who do contracts, it's baffling. And then also the idea that it's experiential, that there's a lot of data, which is relatively, um, it's becoming more accepted in academia, but it didn't always used to be. It used to be more theory-driven. It seems like there's a little more acceptance in data-driven or experiential data. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that's that's definitely correct. So the historical roots have been all in uh, uh, analytical modeling techniques, um, which which is very useful and very nice. But more and more, there's been uh, academics have been using data to try to get insights from that actual from from data from the real world. And I just I really have always enjoyed doing that, right? Because I, I think you can get a really foundational insight using data that that we might not know. And so yeah, that's becoming more accepted. More and more people do it. All my work uses real world data sets to derive insights from it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I do. And the other thing that's nice benefit is that there's more available. I mean, the quality of data to the quantity of data, there's still a little quality issues, but it's so much better than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it's definitely improving. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and what you can fit on your laptop now, right? If you, oh, yeah. what you can fit on your laptop compared to, yeah, go back 15 years ago, they would have a whole data center that would set up to store that stuff. Uh, and, and the analyses that you can run on your machine, uh, are just, uh, are light years from what they used to. I remember back doing network design models, right. And we would run out of memory cause we were constrained to a couple of gigabytes. <laughs> uh, and so you had to do all these aggregation things and, you know, argue yeah. away these kinds of things. But so yeah, the data availability and, and the power of these laptops really empowers tracking more interesting things. And also what's interesting, I think companies, shippers for sure, maybe carriers as well, they're becoming much more comfortable with data analysis. So that's something else that's making it a little easier and more acceptable to show some of these results. But one of the things I really like about your research, Alex, is that while it's academically rigorous, you're publishing in good journals, it always has practical applications. It kind of shows your roots, but that's quite rare in academia, to be honest. And uh, to see this, this duality that uh, I pointed out, I want to talk about a few of your papers. And for each one, I'll give you the title. If you can give me a couple of the key practical and theoretical insights that each paper showed. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. First one uh, came out in Transportation Science 2016, which is premier transportation uh, journal. It's called Service Refusals in Supply Chains, Drivers and Deterrence of Freight Rejection. 
Yes. So that was a really fun paper to do. And that was driven from this kind of insight that, so you you have these procurement auctions that you set up once a year, once every couple of years. You and Yossi Sheffi are are leaders in that for a long time, but that only tells part of the story, right? It's it's the performance after those auctions, which is really key because uh, you can get a low price in an auction, but if it's never adhered to by the carrier, then it's uh, essentially worthless, right? And so so, so we'd had all kinds of research onto how to do these auctions, but there had been virtually nobody. I mean, I think you and uh, Matt Harding, I think had looked at uh, something uh, 15 years ago or something, but but nobody in, in academia had looked at what happens after these auctions? And and so that's what I really looked into. So I got a transactional data set from a large shipper where I got all their load tenders to carriers and look how the different carriers performed. And a, a few things that really stood out is that you know performance uh, is is extremely important after the uh, the auctions because if you get poor performance, you get to go to the spot market, which is very expensive. So that was that was one insight. And the carrier behavior when the market changes, right? When it gets tight, carriers reject a lot more frequently because they're allocating trucks to the spot market to get more revenue. And so uh, that, that was an insight. If your carriers are rejecting more frequently when the prices go up, well, then it's very important to mitigate that behavior. And there's a couple ways you can do that. You can, one, provide price incentives. That's a possibility. Another way is to just monitor them more intensely during those periods uh, when the market is tight. And so I, I think the big insights from that was, was carrier behavior and how that changes in different markets. Right. Well, it's funny, ever since the market got tight, 2017, 2018, shippers all suddenly wanted to become more carrier friendly now. And uh, we're having a lot of work up here at MIT that are looking at this same things again. What can we do? How can we actually operationalize the monetary incentives? Can we create an accessorial for market conditions, something like that? So what's interesting, even though this paper came out three years ago, which means it was written five years ago, <laughs> right. four years ago, it's still relevant. Yes. Yeah. Well, in Asesoros, that's interesting that you bring that up because I, I remember that back uh, in the day, Asesoros are a, a way of uh, of changing prices in different market conditions that is done today, I think. Okay. The second paper is uh, Carrier Bidding Behavior and Truckload Spot Auctions in a Journal of Business Logistics just last year, 2018. What was that one about? Yeah, correct. So, so that one, uh, in terms of academic insights, so there's all kind, there's a massive uh, amount of studies done on auction behavior, but but usually for kind of uh, analytical clarity, they they assume like say all auction participants are basically the same, right? Just based on their values, and and what I found in in use, looking at bidding behavior in hundreds of thousands of auctions, right? Looking at actually millions of decisions whether to bid and then hundreds of thousands of prices, is that carriers behave fundamentally very differently in these different auctions. And it's really driven by their business models, right? So so when you go to practically speaking, you got basically two types. You got brokers and you got asset-based carriers and they behave very differently as auctions. Brokers, at least looking in the, the data I had, they bid very frequently, but they also tended on average to bid a little bit higher than the asset-based carriers. But the asset-based carriers would often bid infrequently and with relatively lower prices. And so the insight there is that there's big value in a listing capacity from asset-based carriers when the market is tight and you need spot capacity. Yeah. Um, last one, the value of information sharing for truckload shippers in Transportation Research E 2015. So that one looks at how spot prices change as the amount of lead time you provide the carrier changes. And and so what it looks at is, is if you give them about three or four days of lead time, it really has no impact on spot prices. But as you get really short lead times, the payoff starts to get significant. And so kind of one of the insights is that a, a shipper, they face a, an important trade-off when they decide whether 
and how to get contract capacity. Say they have a load come up and they've had a tender rejected. You know, yeah, they have a decision to make. Do I go back to my contract carriage or do I go to the spot market? Well, if you wait too long, all of a sudden that spot market starts to increase dramatically in terms of their price. So there's a trade-off there that I thought was an interesting one. Okay. That, that could almost fit into how a TMS makes that trade-off. Most TMSs now have a waterfall method where if the primary rejects, it goes somewhere through the routing guide and at some point it pops to some sort of auction. So this could maybe uh, help determine how those settings should be set? Yes, correct. So there's logic that has to go into that TMS as to when do you waterfall? Do you waterfall at all? Do you uh, immediately go to the spot market? You know, Because if you think about it, you get your primary carrier rejected uh, or rejects a tender. Well, if you go to the backup, that's often more expensive and it might be significantly more expensive. And so you got a trade-off where you could either immediately go down or you could just wait and try again with your primary, let's say the next day and see if they would accept it. Or you could always then go to the spot market, right? There's, so those are kind of three decisions you have to make all the time. And TMS sometimes make it, but yeah, there's logic behind that. Sure. Okay. Now let's get to the main reason why I asked you to the freight fine. Tell me about this most recent paper that's entitled, did the electronic logging device mandate reduce accidents? Uh, You co-wrote this with Dr. Andrew Balthrop of uh, University of Arkansas and Dr. Jason Miller of Michigan State. And uh, congratulations, by the way, on winning the 2019 Grosner Plowman Award at CSCMP. But where did the idea come from? Tell us about how this paper originated. Yeah, this paper has been a lot of fun. It's really been fascinating. I'm, I'm really grateful for that award. It's, it's nice to, to win something from the CSCMP. So this came from a collaboration with with Andy and Jason. We actually met at a place down in the University of Arkansas called the Supply Chain Management Research Center, uh, so where they try to get policy research going. And so we were down there chatting, and we all kind of worked in this space of understanding compliance behaviors of carriers with hours of service regulations and with the federal regulations. And so we were kind of kicking around about this ELD mandate, and we thought that this would be a major impact. It obviously is because everybody wrote about and talked about it. And so we were thinking about how did we think this would affect behavior, right? And so we were kicking around ideas at the Supply Chain Policy Research Center. And I was very familiar with the data because I'd done a previous study using that data. And so, you know, it's it from that collaboration. And so when you were talking about it initially, did you have some major research questions that you hoped to answer? Or were you just kind of exploring around? Yeah, no, no. We, so we definitely started with uh, research questions and we thought through how we thought drivers might behave and how this might alter the calculus they're making, their decisions. Uh, and, and if you think about, so, so an ELD makes it harder to violate hours of service violations and not get caught, right? So it increases the likelihood that you're caught. And so if you implement ELD, then the, the obvious effect is going to be that it improves compliance with hours of service, right? So that's the first thought. It's going to improve compliance with hours of service. But then we thought, well, well, it also might affect other behaviors, right? Because if you're you're racing against the clock, which that had been spoken of, we're not the first people to mention that. If you're racing against the clock, then maybe you have to drive faster, right? So, so think you're a truck driver and you get delayed unloading for a couple of hours that you weren't expecting to, and you're all of a sudden on this clock, right? So that could really affect uh, how fast you drive or uh, the hours you drive. And so we were thinking, well, geez, this could make people drive less safely. They could make them speed more. It could make them change lanes right. more. Uh, and so that was a question. And then if you think about unsafe driving versus our service compliance, these two things kind of move in opposite directions in terms of accidents, right? Because if you drive less safely, obviously accidents are going to tend to go up. If you comply with our service, the thought is that accidents would go down because of fatigue. And so you got this kind of tension there. And, and so we thought that would be interesting to look at what happens. What were your main expectations that you'd see, your, your hypotheses? 
Yeah. So the first one was very clear that we would expect our service violations to go down, right? So we would expect that to go down and we expect that to go down for the small carriers and the individual uh, independent owner operators the most because, and this was from a paper, uh, both Jason and I have different papers, but looking at stuff beforehand, the smaller carriers tended to violate our service a lot more frequently than the large carriers. So we would expect those to go down a lot more relative to the large guys. And and then we uh, we said, well, we also predict that the uh, speeding violations will go up. And then we said accidents probably would go up. I think that's what we predicted. Oh, you did. You so you went in thinking that that the risky driving side effect would increase the number of uh, accidents. Indeed. So so if you look at uh, okay. th- there's FMCSA data, um, a study in 2009, I think that if you look at what activities are more frequently associated with an accident, uh, fatigue was a much smaller percentage than say hmm. speeding or uh, or changing lanes rapidly or something like that. And so, yeah, if, if unsafe driving goes up and it's a more frequent cause, then yeah, it's kind of a logical conclusion that that accidents would go up. Okay. So to move beyond anecdotal and just uh, hypotheses, what methodology did you use? How, how did you rigorously answer these questions? And then what were the uh, results? Yeah. So we uh, have, have a great data set and credit to the FMCSA for making this data available for purchase. So we have all of the uh, inspections data over, over over several years. And we have the census file, which has every carrier operating out there. We also have a crashes, every crash that happens, that's a federally recordable crash. We have all of that data. And if you uh, think about ELDs, you have one group that is highly affected and one group that that's basically not affected. The large carriers, the JB Hunts, the Schneiders, the Werners already had ELDs, right? So they're basically right. unaffected. Mm-hmm. The small guys didn't, so they're highly affected. And so now we can compare changes in behavior across these different groups. So it's based on a statistical analysis called a difference in difference model. And so, yeah, it's based on all of this data, a very rigorous statistical method. And our, our findings were, yes, our service compliance improved greatly improved greatly. Speeding also went up significantly. And accidents, we say in this way, we say accidents definitely did not go down. They may have gone up. Uh, accidents is very noisy. It's, it's, it's noisy to say exactly what happened with accidents, but it's really hard to say they went down and that they very potentially went up. Okay. That that's, so how was that, uh, those results received? Yeah, so we've gotten a lot of press. Uh, I think uh, 40, over forty five hundred people have looked at the paper. Over a couple couple thousand people have downloaded the whole paper and uh, presumably maybe read some of it. Um, it. We've gotten a lot of press in different uh, industry journals. Talked with a lot of newspaper reporters, so it got a lot of press. You know, and and we get the sense that people agree with our findings because the data is out there. We tell them how we did it. We ask them, hey, go ahead and replicate it. Do it independent of us and tell us if we're wrong. I'm, I'm totally open to being wrong. I try not to be wrong, but I'm open to being wrong. And we have not been told we're wrong. So I think it's accurate findings. Um, so, you know, there are new um, rules coming out or suggested rules, changes to the hours of service. Have you looked at any of those, the five big changes? And have you had any thoughts about how that would affect the accidents? Yeah, so we, uh, so I have looked at that, and, and what's interesting is that that uh, it's still a couple of years off from actually being implemented. So that's right. a, it's kind of a long process to to change the rules. But I think it's great to add some flexibility. Uh, I think they increased the uh, fourteen hour rule to maybe sixteen hours or something like that. Yeah, there's a there's a couple couple things they did. The one is they they're requiring the break of at least thirty minutes after eight uninterrupted time. They're allowing the drivers to split the required 10 hours off into two periods that'll get, I think the thought is get them off the road for some of the early morning commutes or the late night traffic. And then the pausing the 14 hour window 
with one off duty between 30 minutes and three hours. And I'll just provide they take 10 hours and a consecutive break and then extend the maximum window of driving during adverse driving conditions by two hours. And then they did something for a short haul. But yeah, those are the big changes. So what do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, those add flexibility. I think that's the key. It adds flexibility back into hours of service and it allows the drivers to make their own decisions more frequently, which I think is a good thing, right? You want to make sure drivers are incentivized to drive safely, not getting wrecks, but you also want them to be able to decide, hey, I'm tired. I need to pull over for a couple hours or, hey, I'm on the outskirts of, let's say, Atlanta and you're hitting rush hour and I'd, ra- I'd rather you know take a nice dinner and then get back on the road when rush hours died down, right? I think allowing drivers to make those decisions is fundamentally a good thing. And so I think adding flexibility- right will will be valuable. I think that's a good good move. So what are you a betting man? What are the odds that they will be adopted? What do you think? <laughs> that's I, you know that's a great question. I I, I bet some of them will be adopted. I, I do think I think at least a couple yeah. of them. I think extending the fourteen hour rule. I hope that's adopted. I think that would be a good one because that will really allow drivers to to have more more ownership of their schedules. I wonder if there's a way ahead of time to try to get a handle on how sensitive these will be if they will make an improvement. I guess you could do a simulation, but you'd have to make some big assumptions about how drivers would uh, behave on these different rules. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. I think that even ties back to kind of our earlier discussion. If you look at what academia used to do, we used to do a bunch of models. We used to do a bunch of simulations. But now we try to get these natural experiments because as, as you say, what would these changes make? Well, it's going to be really just driven by what our assumptions are, right? And 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 let's say this analysis we just did. Well, that's going to be entirely driven as to how you assume the drivers are going to respond, but we don't know how the drivers respond. That's right. that's the point of the study, right? And so, yeah, it would be hard to do that with a lot of conviction ahead of time, I think. Right. I agree. So what are you working on now? Anything interesting? Yeah. So I've really gotten the policy bug. Uh, I, I like studying different policy impacts. So there's one policy that's out there. And, and if I told you that there's a policy that is being implemented that could ruin all of the current FMCSA data, would you think that was a bad thing? Uh, is it privacy data? So I, I said I say that because so so there's a there's a thing called the crash preventability program where they're allowing carriers to dispute whether they uh, were responsible for an accident or not. All right. And so the thought is if huh. they're not responsible, we want to remove that from their record. Okay, it sounds decent on paper. But if you do that and there are systematic biases as to who disputes an accident, whether they're at fault, that all of a sudden biases all of the underlying accident data, right? And so I actually have uh, scraped all of that data um, with help from a friend. So scraped all the data on accidents that were disputed. And you see there's huge systematic biases as to who is disputing accidents. And so if the FMCSA removes those accidents data from the historical record, we will have biased data and none of the analyses we currently do will be useful at all. It will literally ruin it all. It ruin all the analyses we do because there will be systematic biases that are not truly representative of fault. And so this is being implemented now. I'm strongly against it because, uh, you know, I, again, I can show data. It's clearly biased data. Because, I mean, if you think about who is who is incentivized to dispute whether they are at fault or not, given that this has nothing to do with the legal system. This is just, you know, you think about four higher carriers versus private carriers. Well, four higher carriers are going to do it a lot more, going to dispute a lot more, right? And large carriers are going to have safety departments. Small carriers aren't. They're going to dispute a lot more. And you see that very clearly in the data. So I see that as an interesting policy analysis that I'm working on. Um, I'm also working on something with regards to sustainability to look at how um, different greenhouse gas regulations have affected purchasing behavior, that kind of thing, uh, which I think has some promise. But that's uh, that's kind of the directions I'm going. That's interesting. But for the first policy one, 
Is it important that in the data that you scraped for your first paper for the one on ELDs, did it have the carrier name? Oh, yeah. For each actor? Oh, yeah. Well, yes. So that was critical for your analysis only to judge be whether it was a large or small carrier? Correct. So for the ELD paper, uh, so, so every accident has the DOT number and every DOT number is in the census file. And so the census file has the name of the carrier and the size of the carrier and where they operate mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. Uh, and so that's how we link accidents with characteristics of the different carriers. But let me ask a question because this data is, I'm not as familiar with it, obviously, as you are. If a carrier was in an accident and it wasn't their fault at all, it was totally someone drunk, plowed into them, whatever. That still shows up in that file, doesn't it? That does exactly. And so, with the problem, though, with the say this crash preventability program, is that it enables people to say it's not my fault and can potentially get scraped from the record. They haven't gotten rid of that data yet. They still keep the accident data in the okay. record, but they could uh, remove okay. that. And if they do, that would be a big problem because that not everybody's going to do that. So it's not actually indicative of fault. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Okay. Last question. So you're back in the Midwest living in Michigan, but you lived in Boston for what, three years? Yeah, three three years, yep. And you saw at least four duck parades, right? World Series, all the stuff. So what are you going to miss the most about Boston now that you move back to the heartland? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Lions are going to win it, right? Aren't the Lions going to win something? <laughs> 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 it's just, I, I, Always I don't optimist. think they've been to the playoffs in like 20 years or something, but, um, yeah, no, we, we loved it. We loved it. You know, one is, uh, new England has charm that, um, you know, they have the, all these beautiful small towns, the small town we lived in had a great little center of the town. And so we loved living there, but you know, we're closer to family and, and home. So we've enjoyed the move back though. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I, I appreciate it, Alex. Um, enjoyed talking with you about your research and anytime you can come back to Boston, you're welcome to visit. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. I appreciate it. Okay, that wraps up the uh, conversation with Alex Scott. Stay tuned for the market update with Inam Ayub. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for January 16th, 2020. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with drive-in. Active rates have been flat over the last two weeks, whereas the spot rates went up by about 3%. Replacement rates has turned positive and is about 1%. This means that the new contract rates are about 1% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates dropped half a percent, spot raised went up by 2.5%, and the replacement rates turned positive and is about 1%. Finally, on the intermodal side, active and spot rates are flat and the replacement rates are negative and are about 1.5%. So, Enon, that's a a big switch for temp control and drive-in. I don't think we've had positive replacement rates for six months. Maybe in May of last year was the last time. So that's a big change. What are the big takeaways for you for this week? I think the biggest takeaway is that the spot spiking in the last month of 2019, and uh, I believe that's the driver, especially on the new rates, we know that closely follows the spot. So I, I think it's something for us to monitor. For example, on the intermodal side, in our last update, we saw a positive replacement rate, uh, whereas it's negative this time around. So I think it's uh, getting interesting for sure. But it's something that we need to monitor to see if actually it's here to stay or is it something that's a seasonal thing. 
Do you have an opinion whether you think it's just seasonal noise or whether it's the beginning of a trend? Because if you look at some of the big market switches, some people have been predicting that in 2020, we should start seeing the market start turning back up again on the upward part of the cycle. What's your opinion? My opinion would be that it's not here to turn yet. I think everything that we are hearing from the bid results that have come back in the latter part of 2019 is still showing rate reductions of flat. Uh, From a contract perspective, I'm still not thinking that we are to take increases yet. But I think if we see the spot keep rising and also the uh, replacement rates stay positive, then I think we might, you know, we might see the shift. Sure, sure. And and a 1% isn't huge yet. There still might be just some noise in there. Well, that wraps up this episode. The Freightvine podcast is hosted by Inam Ayub and myself, and is produced and edited by Stephanie Bond and Abby Haney. To hear previous episodes, please visit our website at chainalytics.com slash Freightvine. You can subscribe to the Freightvine wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Freightvine or suggestions for what you would like to hear in the future, please send an email to podcast at chainalytics.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freightvine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. 